The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Box. And just a warm welcome to our meditation here together this morning. Happy to see you here. Invitation is just to settle in, settle into a posture that feels comfortable and alert. Set up your space so that you feel like you're going to be able to drop into the meditation. Maybe turn off any alerts, cell phones, that kind of thing. If it's helpful to turn off your camera, feel free. I will keep mine on for now. And starting by going inward, just checking in to how things are for you in this moment. Noticing how your body is in the room, the cushion or chair or however it's situated. Noticing how your mind and heart are in your body. It can be helpful to start with a couple of deeper, more intentional breaths. Allowing any excess tension to release on the exhale. And then allowing the body's breathing, your life's breath to be natural. Noticing, am I aware? It's most obvious in this moment. And if there's any tension or subtle agitation, Perhaps just dropping in the invitation. May the body relax. Inviting, allowing, softens. Dropping in the invitation. May the mind and heart Relax. Noticing the effect of the intention. If it's helpful to rest the attention on a primary anchor of attention, to stabilize it, please do what works for you, whether that's breathing, 
or body sensation or sound. Inviting, inviting whatever this is into awareness. And if it's more hospitable for you, to simply rest in awareness itself, awareness of the moment, receptively allowing everything to flow through. That too is invited. Relaxing. Receiving. Aware. Time to time, refreshing the attention. Aware. Turning to awareness with as much kindness and graciousness as possible.
in the final moment of this meditation, taking a moment to tune in, attuned to the quality of your heart and mind in this moment. Is it contracted and distracted or spacious and settled? Is it complex or simple? What is the quality of awareness right now? And whatever the answer is to that question, taking a moment to appreciate the time spent here in this practice, in this moment, trusting the Dharma, trusting cultivation. Thank you for the sincerity of your practice. Now, as is the custom when I teach here, the invitation is to take just a moment or two still and quiet in meditative space and just send a little pulse of goodwill, kindness, friendliness to your fellow practitioners, the ones here in the Zoom room, perhaps the ones practicing elsewhere right now or to this recording. As you send those good wishes, trusting that you're receiving them from the other people here, near and far. Thank you. So today, I'm just going to offer a few informal reflections on wise view. I'm teaching a series this week on the Saraniya Dhamma which is a collection of the Buddha's teachings on um, interpersonal harmony, really, mostly. And it turns out that all of those qualities conducive to interpersonal harmony are also really conducive to deepening meditation. And the foremost among these qualities, the Saraniya Dhamma, often translated as principles of cordiality, wise view is actually the most important quality by far. 
I'll just name the others so you know the context. The Buddha talks about loving kindness for ourselves and others, especially others in thought, speech, and action. And then he speaks of the wisdom of um, importance of unblemished virtue and showing up consistently with virtue, ethical behavior. And um, sharing, non-stinginess. And then the last, wise view. So it turns out wise view is a really important quality, not just for the path, which I'll talk about mostly today, but also for getting along with others. So I'll just talk about it as far as it plays out in relationship for a couple of minutes first, because this comes up many, many times in the ancient Buddhist teachings, and these indicators of a person with wise view. They show up with those other qualities I just mentioned, and there is a quality of a non-obsession around them. They're aware of, rather than obsessed with, the hindrances of sensual desire and ill will and all the others, doubt, sloth and torpor, restlessness and remorse. There's awareness of those things happening in the mind versus being caught in them, obsessed by them, led by them. And more than anything else, they are not obsessed about speculative views about this world or the way Bhikkhupodi translates it, the other world, or one might say the hereafter. Rather than being obsessed about that, they're more oriented to this, what's here, what's now. And this absence of being focused, obsessed on opinions or speculation means they're also not prone to being drawn into quarrels with other people, especially the more sort of philosophical quarrels, right? Instead, a mature practitioner who cultivates wise or right view, the words in Pali are samaditi. They, um, they have this perspective that's kind of orthogonal to opinions. It's more of a process perspective. What's arising now? What's, what, what's arising that leads to something else? What's ceasing that leads to something else? And this kind of wise view, the Buddha says, I'm quoting here, slants, slopes, and inclines towards Nibbana. Slants, slopes, and inclines towards freedom. Isn't that beautiful? So I'm going to offer just a few perspectives on the perspective of wise view, wise understanding. The first I've mentioned is that it includes a process perspective. And what I mean by a process perspective is conditionality, really. But the most simple and perhaps important form of conditionality that the Buddha taught was the Four Noble Truths. Dukkha, or suffering, the arising, recognizing the arising of suffering in the moment, recognizing the ceasing of suffering in the moment, and 
understanding the path that leads to the ceasing of dukkha. So this is, in one perspective, the beginning of the path. Wise view is the very beginning of the Noble Eightfold Path. And it wraps around being the very end. Because there's different levels of it. There's mundane wise or right view, which is sort of the more intellectual level understanding of this that helps inspire, oh, cultivation works, meditation works, or it can work. And then there is the deep understanding that happens for a mature practitioner at some level of awakening, penetration of awakening. That's one perspective. The second perspective is why its view can be a view understanding action or kama, karma. And I'm going to quote here. This is from the Sutta Nipata. And um, the Buddha is talking here about, um, looking for the title for those of you who are interested, in what makes a true Brahmin. This is the Vasetta Sutta, the Sutta Nipata. And the Buddha was very smart, right? In ancient India, the Brahmins were the most revered caste, the top caste. And what he did in his teachings, which he did with many words, was he kind of retooled the term Brahmin to mean a noble one, not necessarily by birth, but through understanding. So here he's talking about a person who has a deep understanding. One is not a Brahmin by birth, nor by birth a non-Brahmin. Instead, by action, one becomes a Brahmin, and by action, one becomes a non-Brahmin. One becomes a farmer by action, a craftsman, a merchant, and a servant. All of those different roles are defined by action, and many more. A thief by action, a soldier by action, a priest by action, and even a king or queen is a king or queen because of their actions. And then he goes on to say, so that is how the truly wise see action as it really is. Seers of dependent arising, skilled in action and its results. Because action makes the world go round. By action, the population turns. Sentient beings are fastened by kama, action, like the linchpin of a moving chariot. So we can quibble with the ancient language or with, like, Action is not the sole reason a person becomes anything, maybe, in terms of status in society. But the Buddha is making the point that our actions define us. Kama defines us. And what is often taught as karma is the results of action, but it's actually all kind of one process. Kama, action, and vipaka, fruit of action. And that is what we inherit, and that is how we become who we are. It's these, all these repeated tiny micro-actions of thought, language, body. And that's also where the beauty of right view comes in, because 
if actions begin to form the processes of who we are, actions, even of mind, meditation, for example, also begin to shift. It means that practice begins to shift us, to work, to open us, to free us. So that's a second perspective on wise view. A third perspective is one that is classically taught, especially on retreat or in monastic circles or in Southeast Asia. And this is insight into what are called the three characteristics, or what I like to call the three characteristics of subjective experience. Anicca, inconstancy. Dukkha, suffering. And anatta, non-self. So these three, each of them could be a Dharma talk or a series all on their own. So I'll just briefly note that there are three different doorways into the levels of awakening. Three different doorways. And one does not have to enter all three. One is sufficient. So anicca, or inconstancy, is the doorway that's taught most often here in um, the Theravada insight meditation lineage tradition. And the notion basically there is that seeing the inconstancy, penetrating that knowledge very, very deeply, helps one understand, among other things, that nothing is to be clung to. Nothing can be clung to, because it's constantly and always changing. Right? So, um, anatta, non-self, is also taught. Emptiness is another word used. I like to think of this as less, it's not a view, remember, we're talking about wise view here, as it is an experience, an understanding. And not self is kind of the self as a process. That's one way of looking at it. Or the emptiness, the compounded phenomena, all of the different influences. We just talked about action and karma, right? That form this person, this being, this personality, talking or listening in this moment, knitting or walking, whatever it is, all of this forms through process. It's another way of talking about conditionality. But one of my favorite ways of talking about it, I ran across this in Thailand at one of the first monasteries I ever stayed at. There was this big sign, and all it said was, don't be selfish. Don't be selfish. Kind of boils down to that. So, non-self-centeredness. The third doorway is dukkha. Many of you have heard the translations of dukkha. Pain, suffering, dissatisfaction, dis-ease. I love the automatopoeia in dukkha. Um, it comes from the Pali for a wheel out of true, a clunky wheel, clunk, clunk. You can imagine 
riding on a cart where a wheel is clunking. Dukkha, that's dukkha on these like rutted dirt roads, right? So it's that sense, something's off. And it can range from subtle to very painful. The insight into dukkha is often considered to be tantamount to being an insight into the Four Noble Truths themselves. The arising of dukkha, the ceasing of dukkha, and the path to the ceasing of dukkha. And it's a very deep insight. This comes from the Samyutta Nikaya. A practitioner has no perplexity or doubt that what arises is only dukkha arising, and that what ceases is only dukkha ceasing. Their knowledge of this is independent of others. So that, that knowledge is a direct penetration of the Four Noble Truths, so a deepening, a cycling along the path. And it's, in a sense, a very deep insight. It sounds like a buzzkill or a joykill, but it can actually be so freeing, because if dukkha is arising, then it's also ceasing, it's also going away. And it's like, oh, it's just dukkha. And there's just something that can set the heart free rather than we in our human way constantly trying to fix, change, negotiate with, recapitulate, defend against. It's the piece I've seen many times in the hospital, the piece of someone who is ready to die, who's ready and doesn't feel clinging anymore. That peace is deep, it's palpable. So, insight into dukkha is a direct penetration into the Four Noble Truths. And Bhikkhu Bodhi also notes that this kind of direct penetration of the Four Noble Truths happens by way of touching or realizing Nibbana. In a sense, it could be considered tantamount to touching Nibbana. Let's see here. So, all of what I've been saying here is basically to say that samaditi, wise view, right view, complete view, has multiple facets to it and multiple levels to it. One more level or perspective is on greed, hatred, and delusion, and their absence. So most of us, the way we navigate the world, most of the time, is that there's some little strand of wanting, or not wanting, hostility, aversion, whatever, or delusion operating in the mind, most of the time. There's a perspective on this in the Four Foundations of Mindfulness. It's actually a practice to notice this or to, and to notice the absence. The Buddha speaks, how does a bhikkhu abide contemplating mind as mind? A practitioner understands a mind affected by lust as affected by lust and unaffected by lust as unaffected. A mind affected by hate 
as so affected, and a mind affected by delusion as so affected. The practitioner knows a mind unaffected by greed, by hatred, and by delusion. So I was paraphrasing just a little bit there to shorten it, but you get the idea. And those absences, that unaffected mind, those are moments of freedom, liberated mind. They're to be appreciated, to be noticed. They can be very prosaic, or they can feel very sort of exalted and big and amazing, depending on the circumstances, in part depending on the amount of concentration. But the point here is that knowing The Buddha doesn't say beat ourselves up because there's greed, hatred, or delusion floating through, little snippets of thought. Instead, it's know them and know their absence. That's all. That is awareness. That's wisdom. That's wisdom. I don't have it in front of me, but there's this beautiful um, poem by... uh, Chinese nun, Ben Ming. I may have read it at one point in this group before. She was considered to be awakened, very highly thought of. And she writes something like, Don't you know that the five poisons, five hindrances, greed, hatred, and delusion, don't you know that properly seen, they're nothing more than wisdom? Don't you know that the five poisons are nothing more than wisdom? Don't worry about a thing. Don't worry about a thing. That's a bit of her awakening song. To be able to see, metabolize anything moving through the mind as wisdom. Nutriment towards freedom. So those are my kind of informal thoughts today. That's kind of what I have in me today. So the invitation is, any of you, if you have your own perspectives on how wise view has shown up for you or understandings of it that you've heard that I didn't include, because there is a lot on this, and I just touched on some of it, I'd love to hear. Any thoughts? Yes, Kate, hi. Hi. Um, Two things that come to mind for me um, when you were talking about, you know, just recognizing this is dukkha and that, yes, there is a great, often a great freedom, a great ability to lighten with that acknowledgement. I don't, I don't feel that as much with this is impermanent. I mean, you know, like it it doesn't quite, uh, it's like another kind of an insight, but it doesn't feel, I mean, probably it's that it, it, that, that insight would probably come often with dukkha. So maybe the, this is dukkha and it's impermanent. And the other thing was when you said the thing about the sign that said, don't be selfish. And then you use self-centered. It's like, wow, it was so difficult for me to look at the the not self idea because it always felt like when I caught myself holding on to self, it was like 
you're being selfish, you're being, you know, those words, those in the West anyway, those words have such judgment. And the difference, the way I work with the sense of self now of like, whoo, holding on to a big sense of self there, honey. Or, you know, like like the feeling of the of the grasping onto self feels so much more divorced from the judgment of being selfish or self-centered. So it was just that reminder about the potency of those words, you know, and the, the, the confusion with it, you know. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's important. Thank you. And to just say, too, that the tone of voice of don't be selfish can be like, don't be selfish. Like, can be so light. And we in the West really layer a lot of that judgment and self-criticism on there was something about seeing the sign in Asia that worked for me that would not have worked if I saw it here, right? Like the, just a different cultural reference. And it, it did not appear to, it didn't feel judgmental. It just felt kind of almost playful in a way. So thank you for that. It's a good reminder. Anyone else, please? Yes, June. Yes. Hi, Dan. Uh, thank you for the teaching. So recently, um, I just feel like lots of aversion, resistance, and uh, discontent. Sometimes I watch them and I feel powerless. And I, I guess I'm sometimes maybe I'm trying too hard to stop them. <laughs> so I wonder if you can give any advice. That's a beautiful question. Thank you. Yeah, it can be really intense to see the amount that's going on in there sometimes, can't it? Um, just the, um, you said it was particularly for you a version you were noticing a lot of? Right, yeah. So a couple of notions that you might play with. One is simply the knowledge that it's, it's kind of standard. It's installed with the software, so to speak, of being human, that these things will arise initially without a lot of cultivation. So it's really helpful, and this is much easier said than done, not to have aversion to one's own aversion. So if you're noticing a lot of it and feeling the powerlessness, it's probably more helpful to look at the feeling of powerlessness or to look at the aversion to the aversion with compassion than it is to keep looking at the aversion itself. Does that make any sense at all? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that, um, what that does is it backs off the awareness a level from being entangled and enmeshed in whatever we're averse about and more into the observing mind. So it's always okay to take a step back. It's like, okay, there's aversion to the aversion. There's powerlessness. Oh, there's aversion to the powerlessness. And notice that. And just be with, in a gentle way, as spaciously as possible to notice it. It's also helpful to flip so basically what I'm saying is notice the attitude in the mind and the heart when you're when you're seeing it. And if there's a way to hold that with love, it can really, really help. Or at least 
not get involved, like equanimity or, or non-involvement can be a form of love in this case. So you're welcome. Yeah, yeah. And thank you. Thank yeah, you. I think also, also Kate mentioned about seeing the suffering of the aversion and then bring compassion. Exactly. Yeah, that, that, that helps. Yeah, that, that actually, uh, I need to do more. I'll do more of that. Yeah. Great. Yes. So the, the Four Noble Truths, Kate talked about it. I mentioned it in the talk as well, right? This is suffering. Mm-hmm. That begins to educate the system. And to notice if it eases. Oh, it's not there right now. Maybe a foot of humor comes in instead. Oh, suffering ceased in that moment at least. And that begins to educate our hearts, educate our minds to um, to a different way. So excellent. Any other comments that have come up for you or, or ideas based on the conversation? No? Okay. Anybody else? Thoughts? Yeah, hi, Kate. Hi. Um, I wondered um, if you could just say a little bit more about um, uh, seeing and being aware of um, delusion. Um, I know, you know, there are times in my life when I'm, you know, really obsessing about something and I, I have an awareness at some level that that, that, that there is uh, d- delusion in the mix. But it's, it's it, you know, it's quite hard to, to you know, if you are deluded, <laughs> to actually... Um, be, be, be aware of it. Yes. That is an astute observation. Yes, it's very true. Delusion by its nature kind of hides itself, right? So um, I think the answer to your question is a little bit embedded in your question. The knowing that the delusion is there is key, right? And um to have a sense that there's delusion, it's then very skillful to hold it lightly. It's like, oh, the mind has spun up this fantasy or this interpretation or, or this concoction. So it can be helpful to kind of turn towards and be like, are you sure? Really? Are you sure? And you hear the tone, right? It's it's playful. So that can be really, really helpful just to notice delusion as delusion. And then, again, like I, I, June and I were talking about, the process of delusion making is also a process of mind. That's, you know, in Buddhist terms, it's a very old habit. It's a human habit. It comes with being human until we begin to cultivate our minds quite a bit. So to have some grace for ourselves and for other people about this, because it's so easy to get pulled in. And then the last thing I'll say is, at some point it's helpful to notice any sense of disenchantment that you have about the delusion that's weaving itself. And this can be many, many layers of it. It can just be, oh, I've had this fantasy 17 times today. It's just not that interesting anymore. 
or um, and that can be a positive fantasy or a negative one, right? Or it can be, um, you know, is this necessary right now? Like to your own mind. And just to begin to appreciate the quiet spaces that happen when the delusion is not forming. So those are a few ideas. It is the most difficult to work with, Kate. Like, it, it's the one that reveals itself. And the fact that you are seeing it is an indication of wisdom. Thank you. That's very helpful. Thank you. You're welcome. Any other thoughts, comments, or just questions about your practice that have come up? Hi, Don. This is Padma. Hi, Padma. Welcome. <clears throat> Thank you. Um, so I have a question. Um, so a lot of times, even when I'm practicing or during the day, you know, going about things, I kind of like replay what has, you know, like just normal conversation, nothing like, nothing like she said, he said kind of thing. It's just like, oh, okay. You know, we went there, you know what I mean? Just, mm-hmm. so I keep replaying in my head and I'm like, why am I replaying this thing, you know? And then I, I notice it, but I was just wondering, is that, I don't know, is that like a normal thing? <laughs> I mean, is that a sign of something that I'm going nuts, you know? Not at all. It's a sign of mindfulness. <laughs> um, so um, what you're noticing, what it sounds like you're noticing, because I'm not in your head with you, mm-hmm. is the process, natural process of memory formation. So mm. Our minds, and we may have never noticed this if, like, until mindfulness gets strong enough in daily life, to start to notice, oh, my mind keeps repeating this thing. Mm. Just like when we were little kids and we had to repeat the ABCs or, you know, the multiplication tables or whatever. That's how our minds tend to encode memory. I mean, there are other ways they can do it too. But Mm -hmm. it's actually the memory formation process itself. And so to just... You know, I find it helpful to be a little bit amused with it or to just note gently in your mind, oh, memory formation or remembering. So definitely not going crazy. (laughs) Okay. Um, And I have another question too. It might be slightly more on the loving kindness side. Um, So, um, you know, I, I, I love doing it, but I think a lot of the phrases... I'm just saying it because, you know, that's a process kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. But I don't know, like, how it's going to come from the heart. Or is it because I need to do forgiveness in hand in hand with loving kindness, especially for the most difficult uh, people, right? Of course, yes. So that's two great questions kind of folded in. So I'm going to take the second one first. Okay. Um, so... Loving kindness for the most difficult person can take a long time to cultivate. um, And it can be incredibly helpful to do forgiveness practice first before you even try. Even just having the intention or the will to forgive is the Uh beginning of that process. So um, that's just kind of the, the first level there. 
The other thing is that for the purpose of loving kindness practice, it's really helpful not to pick the most difficult person you've ever encountered or the person who's bugging you absolutely the most or has done you the most injury. That's kind of like walking into the gym untrained and picking up a hundred pound barbell. <laughs> right. We want to start with like 10 pounds, 15 pounds, 20 pounds, and gradually work our way up. So classically, often the wisdom is pick someone moderately irritating, right? <laughs> not, not your worst enemy to begin with. And that's not to say we can't get to the worst enemy. It's a beautiful aspiration or to the person who's most harmful, but just to, Get grounded in the practice first. Okay. Okay. So, um, and then the last piece around um, the phrases. So the phrases are one technique and they're the one that's taught the most often in the Vipassana scene. They come from the commentaries and um, they can be very helpful. They're not necessarily the most helpful for everyone. So a couple of ideas. I'm actually teaching an introduction to loving kindness course in March. Um, if anyone's interested, I will be unpacking this in great detail there. But just briefly here, um, it can be helpful to craft your own phrases. You can use the classic ones, right? Those might work really well for you. Or you can make up your own that have the same spirit, that friendliness, goodwill in them. So that's one way. And then as far as feeling it in the body, maybe all of you, all of us who feel like it can do this right now. If you breathe in, just notice the sensations in the center of your chest and your core. Notice that you're receiving the air and then breathing out. Almost imagine breathing out through your heart, or that the breath, the out breath, is an offering, an act of generosity. Breathing in, receiving what is. Breathing out, offering. And you can use something like that to link it to an embodied experience. Some people visualize white light. Other people imagine, like, actually a gesture of offering. Mm-hmm. But to it's, it's not just okay. It's actually encouraged to use your imagination in that practice. And it can be with words or without them. It doesn't have to have words. So you can just experiment for yourself and see. Thank you. Thank you so much. And so I'm assuming the March uh, series will be posted, right? Uh, it will be. It is. It's through a different organization. I'm going to put their website in the chat. Um, so it's um, Sati Center, which is a sister organization to IMC. Okay. And um, at the moment, the registration page is pretty well hidden. But I think if you go to calendar, you can find it. And they're experimenting with charging, but if you click on the registration page, there's also a way to sign up for no fee at all. Um, okay. So cost is not a barrier to anyone who, if you want to take it. Okay. Thank you so much, Dom. Thank you. Um, thank you, Padma. Yes, Marianne, hi. Hi, Deb. I have a two-part question. Padma brought it up. The repeating of conversations 
and finding myself in the I should have said it differently mode, the judgment mode. Do you have some tips on lightening up with that one? Oh, gracious. Yeah, we've all been there, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So there's the simple memory formation. And then what you're describing, which is also good mindfulness, right, is a should have said that, should have done that, shouldn't have said this, shouldn't have done that. Um, Noticing it is a really good first step, right? So kind of like what Padma and I were talking about, just... um, Noticing and then maybe just noting, oh, judgment. Judgment is arising. Self criticism. That in itself maybe isn't lightning on it, but it starts to pry the mind out of doing it and get it into the mode, get our minds into the mode of knowing that we're doing it. And the knowing is really helpful. It starts to create a little bit of space there. And then another one Kate brought up, which I think is really lovely. Um, watch the internal tone of voice. Oh, mm-hmm. sweetie, you're judging again. Look at that. Oh, like that can be really helpful too. And it brings in that loving aspect because some part of you knows it's not good for you. Yeah. <laughs> And we hear, gosh, darn it, we do this, right? (laughs) So, but just to bring in really intentionally if you need to. And then finally, the last piece is um, kind of more to Padma's questions, cultivating, intentionally cultivating loving kindness when that kind of stuff happens, especially for yourself, can be helpful. So... um, my inner voice over the years, similar to Kate's, has gotten kinder over the years. And sometimes it'll catch, like, I'll catch some little flip of this going on. And then the natural response is, oh, I love you. Right? And that just cuts it. Like, so to um, to bring it in intentionally a little bit, if you can. I don't. Did that feel like it would be accessible to you? Oh yes, that's very, very helpful. My second part question was: you were talking about forgiveness and the forgiveness process of being willing to forgive. Are there more steps that you can recommend <laughs> in a relatively short period? <laughs> Yeah. So I'll be really candid. This is not an area of expertise for me. So my understanding is that forgiveness practice was um, brought into very wisely into Buddhist practice, probably by Stephen and Andrea Levine, uh um, who are um, who were I think they've both passed away now, sadly, but were these beautiful um, Jewish Buddhists, Jubus who um, worked in hospice for many years. That was one of their main practices in addition to being Buddhist teachers. And um, the Jewish faith has a formal forgiveness practice. So um, it's been kind of adapted and morphed over the years. And some, if you wanted to use phrases, you could. Um, It is things like, may I accept what has happened? 
May I be willing to be with what has happened as it is. May I have the understanding that their unskillful actions or your unskillful actions, if you're aiming it at the person, came from your own suffering. So those are a few. But you may just um, Bing or search Google um, Stephen Andrea Levine Forgiveness Practice because I'm pretty confident that they have unpacked it in ways that are um, more fully fledged than what I'm able to describe here. Very helpful. Thank you. Anybody else want to chime in? Going once, going twice. All right, so I'm going to dedicate the merit and stop the recording. And if anyone wants to stay around for a little bit of informal chat afterwards, I'll leave the Zoom room open and stay here for a few minutes if you would like to do that, okay? Meanwhile, may the practice that we have done here together be a benefit to our own hearts and minds. May this practice be supportive of freedom and be supportive of us benefiting all of the lives we touch and of the lives that we touch benefiting all of the lives they touch and so on. May all beings everywhere be happy. May all beings be safe. May all beings be peaceful, and may all beings be free.